You know, for us, um, one of the things we've learned over the past 30 years is that we can't uh, revitalise Te Reo Māori on our own. You know, uh, in fact, the the, um, uh, the proportion of Māori that speak Te Reo Māori or can speak about everyday things in Te Reo Māori has has, um, has shrunk back to 21%. Although the numbers have increased because our population is bigger. But as a, as a, as a, as a percentage, um, it's dropped from 23 to 21. But there are 130,000 Māori who say they can speak Māori and a further 20,000 uh, non-Māori who say they, they can speak Māori. Nāhiwi Apanui, CEO of Te Tauruwhiri i Te Reo Māori, the Māori Language Commission. Oh, I'm a, a kaioko at the school. Um, it's very important kaupapa here. It's... Uh, make sure that our, our language is um, well ingrained in the um, in New Zealand whakaaro uh, for, the, for the whole week throughout the country and it's a good celebration for us as a, as a, as a country to acknowledge our, um, our reo and the status of our reo. A teacher at last year's Hikoi downtown at Wellington to celebrate the launch of Māori Language Week. So Hana Tehimara came to visit my dad and asked him to support her petition. Her petition, which was sponsored um, by Ngā Tamatoa. They had decided um, to petition the government to ask for Māori language to be available, to be offered in all schools. Dr Cathy Dews talks about taking the Māori language petition to the steps of Parliament. あ、ジョイトリトマ、リーマ、イレルカトワ、トム。ホエナヌイトン、アンドリー・ロブ。あ、カミヒキャラタ。オチラ、キキャラタウイファカフフウチャネイエホエポイトムライ。あ、テフン
you must make the decision because this this tonga is a gift from God. And of course, when you when you have to front up there and meet your maker, and God says to you, "What did you do with the gift I gave you? What will be your reply?" And so, uh, yes, that was one of our kind of key principles: was we don't want to be in that position. <laughs> As one of the original members of the Te Reo Māori Society at Victoria University, tonight John takes a trip down memory lane. He remembers those who fought the fight, his teachers and mentors. He looks back at the time when the Te Reo Māori Society was formed and how it shaped his life and career. This is Tiahika on RNZ National. So that, so this is an unknown painting. This is the only one there is, original. By Inside John McCaffrey's Auckland home, a large, bold painting in his kitchen takes up most of a wall space. Of, um, across the Pacific, and of course in Te Reo it was Hina, uh, who was Maui's sister, and the tuna story. But here, um, the, the, the tuna... Um, during the during the daytime is a tuna, and of course at night he turns into a most handsome rangatira, but he brings Sinara fish as a gift, a mealofa uh, koha, and she accepts the fish, but um, at the same time you can see she's so worried in her other self here that um, her brothers and her family are highly disapproving of her having a relationship with a tuna, and even though she knows that he's going to turn into a handsome chief at night and perhaps secretly spend time with her, she still knows that the family's not going to approve of a relationship with a tuna, so she's completely conflicted. So Moy has captured that kind of anxiety. On the kitchen table, John lays out a few Māori language resources from the late 1970s to early 1980s. Books and posters seem to jog his memory during a poignant time in his life. John's worked alongside the Ministry of Education in the Cook Islands in development and research in dual-medium bilingual education. He was raised an Irish Catholic and says his great-grandparents were fluent speakers of Gaelic. And while his grandfathers and father could understand the language, they were too shy to speak it in the home, except on the odd occasion. Only, only when older um, uncles and aunties came to play cards and, and drink plonk and yeah, yeah, and have their have their evenings. But of course, as a young kid, you didn't really take that much notice of it, and and so so I guess. Um, but I but I grew up in a household where they kept telling me that they didn't come all the way around the world to recreate the same kind of uh, nasty society that existed in the in the old world of Europe. They would say we're here for something different. And I'd say, what is that? <laughs> what is that, Papa? And, but um, I don't think they really knew, but they certainly knew that if you wanted intolerance about people's languages and cultures and religions, we, my grandfather used to say, well, you could stay in Ireland and have that boy. Oh, there's no need to come here and have that. That's right. Yeah. So, so I think that when you ask me about that, I think that's the primary influence. And so my parents um, you know, always encouraged us to, 
to learn what Māori we could. Uh, my father worked at um, Crown Inn Amalgamated Brick in New Lynn employing masses of, of Māori staff with um, social functions and cultural events in Hāngi and, and they sent me off to work with my other Tongan relations in, in Tonga on VSA when I finished school. Sorry, John, when you say Tongan relations, what do you mean? Um, well, my, my um, grandmother's sister I was married to Arthur, ah. Co- Arthur Cocker and so, and the Cockers were originally an English family that came to settle in, in Tonga and set up uh, the plantation systems and um, um, operated uh, things there and became really wealthy with the money that they acquired from Tonga. And my grandma and, and my mum and his children um, you know, went to Tonga and were involved in the, in the house and they had a big property here as well. So my mother said she disapproved of the vast amounts of money that were taken out of Tonga by by our branch of the family and we were to go back and find out about that story and to make a contribution back wow. to Tonga. So that started my kind of work in Tonga in, in education. His job back then was to monitor how good the teachers and students were in English. It was a voluntary post, and in over a year, he visited most of the islands of Tonga. Unbeknown to him at the time, the Department of Education in Tonga put in a good word for him back in Wellington when his mum set about applying on his behalf for teachers' training college. I, I wound up in social studies department with Tipinia Regan, Barry Metcalf, of course, that famous Pake Māori, one of the few really good Pake who could speak Māori really well, composed Māori poetry, knew about Oriori and... Um, things like that, and um, they ran the first Polynesian Studies courses at, at Wellington Teachers College, and so we were very much involved in helping Marae to rebuild, um, repaint, maintenance uh, with Ngāti Toa at, at, and Ngāti Daukawa at, on, on Kapiti, um, just wherever they saw that a need for interaction and Tipeni in particular was really great. I became a research assistant for him in my work on researching the history of the settlement, the um, iwis that came down from from um, Tairawhiti down through Wellington into the South Island. Did you realise at the time that you were there to probably to a, to to another world, so to speak? Yeah, it wasn't a wasn't a strange world because it was very similar to the Irish world. I mean, you know. Long discussions because Tipeni was Irish, of course. The Oregon, uh, his father is, is Irish, that side of his family. So long discussions about Ireland, about a language, about culture, about injustice, about social justice. Um, of course, that was the time of the Vietnam War and the, and the All Black Tour. And so every all of us as students and staff were involved in those issues as well. In 1972, the Te Reo Māori Society of Victoria University were a bunch of students, both Māori and Pākehā, learning Te Reo, led by Koro Dews. John says today he is a lifelong Taina member of the society. He joined, along with his mates Robert Pauwhare, Dr Lee Smith, Dr Joe Terito, Dr Rangi Nicholson and Dr Cathy Dews, all who have contributed to Māori language revitalisation in broadcasting and education. Almost 46 years ago, the Society, along with Ngā Tamatoa, presented the Māori language petition on the steps of Parliament. Last year, 
John talked about that time at a commemorative event hosted by Victoria University. And just a couple of people that I really brought in in the front, uh, Sid Jackson, Hannah with Koro, and in the next row, Tom Rod, Awirirangi Tawira, Joe Tirito, Fai Jews, Meri Tiawa. We haven't spoken a lot about Meri, but enormously important in our lives. Um, yeah, the Tanifa of the greatest proportions was Meri. <laughs> Don't you bring me your assignment. Here, John gives a visual explanation of a photo captured at Parliament. Kathy said, there are many people who are part of this struggle who were maybe not necessarily... Um, regular attenders of Te Reo Māori, but who were very strong supporters of us and who came to that uh, tennis pavilion in Marae uh, ki te tautoko. And, um, yeah, and there's the Haka boys, there's Fai, there's Tom, there's Lynn Hawkins, of course, she had to be in the front row with her short dress, see? See the short dress? Absolutely banned by, by the old people from of Parliament. And Joe on the right, and um, someone, my wife, said, who's that beast? at the back there, the glasses and the beard. There's one up here in the back. And of course, it, it was Kamati, and you can see the smile on Tunukurene's uh, face, because of course he is a direct descendant of Raupataha, uh, and you'll see in this presentation that he had Tuera Hauraki's patu, that uh, somebody still holds, um, that he did the tukutonga over the petition to ensure that the petition would succeed. And so we were so delighted to do Kamati for him after he had done the tukatonga. John says that the purpose of the petition was to roll back the loss of the language. The Richard Benton study was proof that the language was in decline. Conducted between 1973 and 1979, Benton and his assistants travelled the North Island and interviewed almost 6,500 families. The survey sought to find out how the Māori language was used in the home, whether it was spoken or not, and the overall attitudes towards it. John talks about Richard's work. Okay, so he was the director of the Māori schooling unit at the New Zealand Council for Educational Research. He'd obviously been there for for quite a bit of time before that. But one of the one of the things that his early literature reviews and surveys revealed prior to nineteen seventy was about the the desperate state that the language was in. So it shifted from being a generic Māori schooling unit that had a focus on learning English for Māori and, you know, what's going for Pacific people now, narrow visions of academic success and and how to raise Māori academic achievement. That was all the background to it, to a focus on, on Te Reo. And Richard drove that um, from within that, within that unit. John says that the Benton study was another reason for the petition. We had a very close relationship with with Richard, and he he had just begun or had begun begin to work in 1970 on the on the Who Speaks Te Reo and Aotearoa surveys, yes. and most of us worked for him um, as researchers or um, organisers or office people. I didn't because my deal was always so bad, um, but you know most of my colleagues did work for Richard at different times to keep themselves in Council for Educational Research. So we had insights into what was happening with Tareo and our gut feeling was then supported as early as 1970, 1971 that there was a crisis looming and that you know there was not going to be another generation um, of Māori speakers at that time. Kind of motivated us warning tremendously. Warning bells went off. Yeah, warning bells went off, but we couldn't interest anyone in that issue because the research wasn't finished. Of course it was just 
just access to the data that Richard had been had been gathering, and the formal survey of going out didn't begin until quite a lot later. Um, but Richard, uh, from 1964, 65 onwards, had been aware of. Um, of what was happening in, in immersion education in French Canada and the project, the St Lambert experiment, which started in 1962 there and had then just produced the first generation of uh, speakers, of children who entered the immersion programmes in French Canada, didn't know a word of French and came out as fluent speakers, readers and writers. So by 1969-70, those children were... You know, were graduating from primary school and, and, and Richard had access to that research data of course and that was the basis for our belief that we didn't need to have the teaching of the language in schools we needed to have Maori medium education. It's part of John's plan in the future to write a book about the history of the Te Reo Māori Society. It'll be a collection of, of, of stories based on the histories of individual people and um, I always thought it would be good to try and put those together because then you'd have a, have a rich picture whereas um, you take any one person's view, however clever they might think they are or however talented yeah. they are, you're getting just a very small perspective. Yeah, yeah and so mine has always been from a Parker perspective. And a lot of my colleagues at the time, you know, they were sort of invited to piki te taipa, you know, jump the fence and become a Parker Māori. But unfortunately I was weighed down with my whakapapa and my Irish ancestors yes, and knew too much, and so I couldn't <laughs> do that. <laughs> but I was tempted at times, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because it was still an option in the early days. It was there. The Te Reo Society Society is formed um, but in 1970. In 1970 yeah. in the no, no marae, of course, at university and and hugely bureaucratic means of trying to get access to the university buildings for after hours and functions. So the tennis pavilion was the ideal place to go. Stood on its own, yeah, just down the road, separate from everything, could be opened and locked at all hours, yeah, and uh, it gave us that privacy to, to haka pateri and, and, and waiata without complaints of noise and right. other interruptions, yeah. I think we started in, in, in 70 pushing the boundaries and um, but trying to do it in a, in a Māori way. So it took, it took time because, um, you know, we had to learn why we wouldn't go to a marae unless we could stand up and sing the waiata that we needed for it. Appropriate ones, of course, not just any anything. And um, we decided to go out to schools to try and inspire the schools, regardless of the department, to take on learning Māori. So we would go once a week with a kapahaka group to every school who would be willing to have us over lunch times on a Friday, usually in the Wellington um, region, Wellington region, and just work our way around the schools and, you know, and try and say to kids, look, this is this is you could be part of this if you wanted to. And of course, we were always in more demand than we could meet, and people sometimes made their lectures and sometimes didn't. Because <laughs> <laughs> you guys were students as well yeah, at yeah, the same yeah. time. Yeah. So, but um, the, so there was this kind of public kind of front which was no te reo Māori will, will not appear with Ngātamatoa at anything other than issues to do with te reo. But behind the scenes, of course, people were, were really active and involved in, in just about everything that was going. Mm. Um, and so, um, but what what helped build that relationship was um, uh, Hana um, came to talk to Koro about because he was the main spokesperson for Te Reo at that time, and those discussions took place at Quarrel's place um, and affected the, the wording of the petition and of the strategies. And um, 
on the basis of those kind of discussions, the agreement was that Te Reo Māori would be running the petition projects in Wellington and wherever else it could. Well, Tamatoa did the work in, in Auckland and in Christchurch. We, we were already underway. We'd been underway for, what, over two years on Te Reo before then, promoting it in the radio stations and that. So we had an, a good idea of how, you know, how we might go about that. And part of capturing those stories include the not-so-nice ones. John says that violence broke out when students were collecting information for the Māori language petition. People at the, at, at the railway station collecting petitions to their Māori members were punched and pushed and petitions were grabbed at to be torn up. Some people wanted to set their dogs on us in Porirua for, for when you're knocking on doors. Uh, there was a lot of opposition, you know, uh, Tereo was just seen as some um, useless. Were you treated like that, John? But because you were parking doing this work, you were still treated disrespectfully. Yeah, people were still. Yeah, I, I mean, I got treated better because I was, but obviously, Maori, yeah, the so Maori, my Maori were... colleagues were doing it. Were seen as trying to push something down someone else's throat. Oh, yeah, gotcha. and there are many, many stories of that. And I think that we just, ex- I expected that because I, growing up as a parker, I knew those views were there, but. But I just have never been able to accept that that's <laughs> that's, that's the kind of um, New Zealand that we that we need to have. Yeah, and I always think about those who oppose it. You know, the time to oppose it was when it was made a national language. Now it's the law. The law is passed. It is our official national language, one of them. So there's no going back, even on a legal basis. You can grizzle about it. You can carry on, but you can't go back. You can't un- unofficialate it. And so once you accept. The koha and the gif, you know, you're stuck with it. It doesn't mean you have to use it yourself, but you shouldn't be trying to prevent other people from accessing it. Does it tell you that there's still a long way to go? No, it doesn't. No, I don't think it does because, you know, as I said, there's too many pākehā on the land to ever think that you're going to convince everybody about everything. I think the biggest biggest failure was not to just get on and, and, and work with those people who wanted it. And that's been the disappointing thing, that a few um, outspoken opponents would kind of politically block the opportunity for the for the million or more who actually want access to it. And I think that's the frustrating thing. And that's why the kind of silent what used to be the silent Parker majority who believe that Tadeo is part of New Zealand's heritage need to speak up and tell their political masters that, that it is something they want for their children because if we don't do that, that they'll continue to, to feel as though it's too politically risky you know, to, mm. to, to offer it to everyone. So that's why I've always said that that kaupapa was a Parker responsibility. It's, 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 an, it's no good Māori going to politicians and, and saying, you know, we want this, we want that, because the politicians are aware that the vast majority of people who vote for them are going to be Parker or non-Māori. So it's what the non-Māori think that are determining whether we all get to deal. In some learning institutions, part-time te reo Māori classes seem to be bursting at the seams. More businesses are supporting the language during Māori Language Week and more broadcasters in prime-time viewing and listenership are weaving te reo Māori greetings and sign-offs in their work. But John says the notion that te reo Māori is accepted is still a long way off. Well, I think um, there's been many amazing things 
um, that have happened. I mean, let's just deal with the saddest one. The saddest one is that gift that was offered in the petition, in Hannah's petition, that it was offered as a koha to the nation, uh, but has never been accepted. Many syllabuses, many programs, much talk, but the idea of having te reo accepted by the nation, you know, by the power structure, by Parker, as a gift from Māori for everyone, a program for everyone, we are still battling that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. and, and the, some of the success stories? Well, huge success stories. I mean, um, s- starting with the, just simply the teaching of, of Māori in those years when Labour came to power from 1972, immense quick progress on getting acceptance of te reo into schools with the Gazette policies, with the appointment of Māori advisory services, with the development of resource teachers of Māori, with Kaiari deal, with the Act to establish the Tauriwhiri and a national language, official language, um, you know, and many of those things. John's career in education has been a lifelong commitment. His wife, Judy Talingalu McFall-McCaffrey, is founder of the Pacific Library and Information Management Services Network. She is proficient in the Samoan and Tongan languages and is learning te reo Māori. Both her and John are joint coordinators of the bilingual Leo Pacific Coalition. You know, I, I was part of starting the first um, urban bilingual program with Tom Rowe and Te Reo Māori Ki Otara in the uh, year 1980-81 at, um, at Clydemore School. And so, yeah, I've always had to use Te Reo. But, um, and then I went to work at, um, after developing those programs, working at Teachers College in, in Te Punawananga, but on the on the knowledge about language teaching strategies and skills rather than the te reo itself, right. and that's been the contribution all the way through, really, um, in in you know, in working in that kind of part of it. Yeah, mm, yeah. Sure. And I guess I'd, I mean, my my big reluctance is that I've probably been too active in many of those areas and haven't given enough time to myself to actually improve my own real. But I, but I guess in the early days, I never saw that as that important because because I think my view was that if the next generation if there wasn't another generation of Maori speakers if te reo didn't survive there would be nothing for Pākehā to have so our view was we had to ensure that there was another generation of Maori speakers and that 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 tātai hono was secure before we could legitimately say um, yeah we'd like access to it too because if, if te reo disappeared, there's no use Spaga bleating on about how they'd want it because there's no one to give it to you. <laughs> there's nobody left to give it to you. So there was, there was definitely that view that we needed to work together to, you know, to secure the deal. And when it was um, secure and at a time at which was appropriate, then it would be time for people to say, hey, yeah, we, we'd like, as, as, as Tana, we'd like access to it too. Yeah. And these days, you know, you could walk into a wānanga, oh. 40 students, maybe a good 20, 15 are uh, Pākehā. Well, you know, that was just an observation my yeah. husband made. Yeah, I mean, there's, and, and that then that was always the worry that there would be more Pākehā speakers than Māori and what's going to happen to Te Reo then. But as I keep saying to uh, to, to Cathy and to my um, uh, Te Reo Māori 
um, brothers and sisters, look, the the treaty and the and the Tuakana relationship will ensure that there are no worries with that. And we just need to keep reminding people that that's the deal that we got into, and that's the deal that still <laughs> <laughs> that still operates. And I and I and I, I guess. Um, for me, though, of course, uh, marrying a Samoan, yes, um, yeah, was was six kids, yeah, was the, yeah, t- or ten grandchildren, was was the advantage, well, not the advantage, but was took me into into the whole issue about language for Pacific peoples too, you know, and for our own kids and our own grandchildren. Who are some of those po in your life that have been um, influential in the years? You've mentioned. Uh, yeah, the old man was very, very influential. And you'll, you'll have heard people many times talk about his, um, uh, about his saying that he gave people, you know, which was um, in the lead up to the petition was, um, you must make the decision because this, this tonga is a gift from God. And of course, when you when you have to front up there and meet your maker, and God says to you, "What did you do with the gift I gave you? What will be your reply?" And so, uh, yes, that was one of our kind of key principles was we don't want to be in that position. <laughs> yeah, so that he, he was hugely influential. And, but so were they all. I mean, many, many Kroa uh, came to work with Koro and the students and staff of, of Vic in those early days, virtually Peter Hurinui Jones, virtually everyone who was involved in any aspect of, of things Māori. You know, they were supporting the fact that the deal needed to be um, revived and that it needed to be revived in a, in a Māori way, I think, mm. which was what. So, I mean, Reverend Hemi Portatale that I've spoken about was hugely influential in our lives. But for me personally, it was it was Reverend Portatale, uh, Koro, Api, um, T. Penny, of course, always, Barry Metcalf, who was my role model as a Parker speaker of, of Te Reo, um, and a person absolutely committed to things. Richard Benton, of course, for the research. That's where I got my passion in that. Uh, Janet Holmes and Graham Kennedy for the for the linguistics work that I did, and of course Joan Mitch for the for the Aroha Manaki mm. <laughs> uh, and kindness. Kia ora, tēnei koe e John McCaffrey, and he's certainly been at the forefront of political movements such as the Māori language petition. And John has kindly uh, supplied some photos from that time and, of course, from his work over the years. You can check out the photos by heading to our web page, rnz.co.nz forward slash teahika. While there, you can subscribe to the newsletter to give you a reminder of what's coming up. And you can also subscribe to the podcast. Kua ia tēnei wahanga o te ahika, nō rere te whanau hoki mai anō heitera tapu e tū mai nei. Join us next Sunday on RNZ National or online. Kia pai tā koutou rā, hei kona mai. Ki ngā rangi e, biko iko mai ngā whetu i te pō. Tāpiata mai ngā whetu i te pō. Mātai.